How you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Elder, I'm excited to hear your story. And I would love for you to talk about Inside Circle too, but maybe we can start at when you were incarcerated and your journey throughout the system and what inspired you to give back, if that's a good starting point for you. Wherever you choose, that's where we'll start. <laughs> All right. Tell us about your story, Eldra. Okay. Heard you say start with incarceration. So I was arrested in 1990. November 1st, 1990, I was arrested. After being in the community for a total of 21 days, having left the California Youth Authority, Young People's Prison in California. And when I was arrested on November 1st, 1990, I was arrested for a series of crimes, including crimes that would uh, ultimately send me away for life in the California prison system at the age of 19 years old. I went in with the attitude that I had to create a persona for myself that would make certain that since this is where I was going to be for the rest of my life or for, you know, the lion's share of my life, then, then I had to continue doing the things that I was doing in the street that got me sent to prison, but maybe even more so outsized because I was going to be here. And at that time they had weights and all of that sort of creatine and everything else in the pen. So they had dudes walking around looking like they just stepped out of a, a, a Mr. Olympia contest or something like that. I was like 5'10", 130 pounds soaking wet. And so Showing fear was not an option, but, you know, to be honest, the little boy inside of me was scared to death. So I wanted to put myself in position to uh, let it be known that I was not somebody to be fucked with. And so what that meant was that I had to maybe not be the most dangerous individual out there, but I definitely, you know, in my mind had to be someone that was seen as dangerous someone that you know any of the other quote unquote super predators would look at and be like yeah i'm gonna go and try and find an easier target an easier mark so i submitted to the fear and created a persona and i continued you know engaging in gang activities i continued carrying weapons and moving weapons and assaulting people and looking at the state of california as the enemy and digging myself deeper and deeper because I felt like that was where I was going to die. That's where I was going to be. That was my world now. So I need to create a space for myself in this underworld as a respected figure. So for the first 10 years, dozen years of my sentence, I was doing the same thing, committing felonies inside of prison, going to the hole, going to solitary, catching shoe terms and uh, yeah, engaging in criminal activity. When you got sent, did you have a life sentence? Mm -hmm. or I had 17 years running what they call bow-legged. So I had to finish the 17 years first. And once I completed the 17-year term, then the seven, the life term kicked in. So oh I did a, a, a total of 24 years before I was paroled. Wow. Wow. That was your entire youth as a young adult. Mm -hmm. I went in 19 and I came out, I was in my 40s. Oh my God. Did you see the light? I mean, what if you assumed that you'd be there for your whole life, what was that feeling like when you were about to be released? 
when I was about to be released, the feeling was disbelief when I learned that I was going to be released because for somebody with a life sentence, there's a, a, a process in California in which you go before uh, the parole board, the board of parole hearing. And it is a political panel, political appointees made up generally of uh, retired wardens, retired sheriffs, police captains, corrections officials, district attorneys, and they're appointed by the governor. They have, you know, what I like to call, they have professional bullshit detectors built in as a part of their vocation. So the process involves going before these, you know, former law enforcement officials and convincing them that they would not mind not only signing the papers that are allowing you to walk out of prison, but allowing you to be their next door neighbor. So when I went in, there was never a thought of getting out, not through that process. The thinking that I had about getting out was about escape, you know, finding some way to tunnel out or finding some way to put myself in a box and mail myself out through a, some sort of transport truck or overpowering somebody and taking a vehicle, you know, and ramming it through the gate or something. And so when I, uh, the third time I went to board and was granted parole, when they said, that parole was granted, I almost didn't hear it. It was like I was underwater and I could hear the words, but they, they, they hadn't sunk in. I was looking down at the table and they were reading off the, into the record what their decision was. And I looked over at my attorney and she looked at me and she started shaking her head like, yes, you did hear what you think you heard. I looked over at the officer and he looked at me and gave me a thumbs up and I started crying. There was shock, there was amazement, there was joy, there was sadness, there was fear, there was the gamut of emotions that just came flooding in. You had no idea. I did not. I didn't expect it. It, it, it wasn't wow. something that I expected. Wow. So at that time, did you feel for yourself you had the skills and the resources to rebuild and rehabilitate? Or is that I, something I, that you acquired outside? Oh, I definitely felt like at that time that I had acquired the skills to uh, new coping mechanisms and ways to manage the causative factors that contributed me going to prison. And I felt like I was ready for society. And they obviously felt that too. I was able to demonstrate that to them as well, but it wasn't something that I expected. I was, you know, and the word that, you know, my wife uses is humility. I was humble enough to know that it wasn't necessarily something that I deserved. You know, I can go in here and I can ask for this and I can present this. And if they say no, I have to be okay with that as well, because I put myself in this position. And so it's not about being rehabilitated so that I can go back into society. It was for me, it was really about rehabilitating my spirit, rehabilitating my soul so that I could reconnect with humanity and be okay with, you know, who I saw looking back at me when I looked in the mirror. And if that meant that I was going to be doing that the rest of my days behind bars, you know, so be the case. Is that when you dedicated your life towards service and giving back to the youth? I actually started doing that while I was inside we started a program while I was at the California Medical Facility, a youth diversion program. Officer Long, she started a program where we were bringing youngsters in 
from the outside, from local juvenile halls and high schools. And it wasn't a scared straight program where we, you know, get in their face and yell and scream and holler because that doesn't work. You know, that didn't work on me when I was a kid. It was more about the way that the program was designed was we would get the youngsters bio sent in about a month before they came in. So everybody who was a part of the program, we had the bio and then we would match this young person with two people who would be their mentors for the day and were incarcerated that had the same or a similar background. So it was somebody that the young person could really identify with and spend the day with and get to know. They come in and go through the process of going through receiving and release, which is where you come into prison and you're given you know, your uniform and your first fish kit and all of that. And we take them on a tour throughout the, they spend the whole day, they stay there for eight hours. And they're eating lunch there and they're getting a tour, you know, a day in the life of, they get the opportunity to go into sales. They get to go out and see a full running prison yard up and running. And they get the opportunity to spend time with their mentors, with the individuals that they're matched up with and learn about their life trajectory and how they wound up where they're at. And hopefully they're able to see themselves in those people and recognize this is not where I want to be. And then they start developing a plan for themselves moving forward, you know, to make some different decisions in their life. So I started working with young people when I was inside, you know, in the hopes that the work that we were doing could uh, potentially serve in some sort of way to help some young people learn the things that we learned without having to go away for life to learn it. Mm -hmm. In that situation, do you feel for yourself and the youth in general, it's a case of role models and being in the wrong place at the wrong time and doing the best one knows what to do to survive? For me, in my experience, you know, as an individual and what I've seen, it's about role models do play a part in it. In an environment, what I see is what I know. And a, another big piece is unresolved trauma. You can have somebody that has, you know, again, I'll use myself. I had two parents. I come from a two-parent household. This year, my parents will celebrate their 52nd wedding anniversary. So I know what stability looks like. I know what it looks like to, you know, be in a house where people, you know, love you and there's a nurturing environment and their structure and their rules. And I also know what it's like to be a victim of trauma and have that unresolved and have that undealt with and not know how to cope with it and the decisions that a young child can make coming out of a traumatic situation about who they are, about who the world is, about what my place and what my role is in the world. And that can affect the decisions that I make and the choices that I make in life. Recently, I had someone from Mankind Project on as well as mm -hmm. Core Experience, and they do both for men and for women. And that's so true about unresolved childhood trauma. I feel in society, we're not given the tools it's not taught in school. How are we supposed to know how to move forward with those experiences? Mm -hmm. Without and, the training, it's... Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Do you have children now? I do. Yeah? Yeah, I have two young males. One's getting ready to be 16 in June, and one will be five next month. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. You must be such a great dad. Well, I don't know. You, I try to, I try to do things in a way that is 
what my experience teaches me is healthy. I try and do things in a way that encourages them to be themselves and encourages them to acknowledge emotions and acknowledge feelings. And I try to model for them what that looks like when a man does it and just be open to learning from them and not going into things thinking that I know everything and everything, you know, is my way or the highway. It has to be my way. Recognizing that they're individuals and they're people with, you know, their own unique personalities and wiring and hold space for that while also holding, you know, a container of parental safety as a responsibility. So it's tough. It's tough. I don't know if I'm great, but I'm definitely dedicated in it. And I'm not foolish enough to think that it's something that's easy or that I have all of the answers or anything like that. It's a job. It's an active chore that requires being engaged 24 hours a day. Can you walk us through, for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know the languaging of childhood experiences and trauma can affect adulthood? and how experiences can manifest and materialize mm -hmm. in a unclear way, mm -hmm. if one is unaware. Can you give an example of what that looks like? Sure. Again, you know, keeping it in the eye perspective. As a child, I was a victim of sexual abuse by uh, babysitters. And one of the babysitters was female. And the way that that used to play out was she put my younger sister to sleep and then we'd, we, she and I, the babysitter and I would lay on the couch and she would pretend like she was asleep. And while she was pretending like she was asleep, magically, her blouse would open up and I would be shifted. You know, she'd, she'd move in such a way to shift me onto her chest, onto her breast. And I would do, you know, whatever I was doing with her breast. So when, when you hear that, you think about, okay, childhood trauma, you think about childhood sexual abuse, molestation, rape, whatever term you utilize to put on it. And for me, what it was doing was informing me at the age of seven years old, what intimacy looked like. It was informing me as a young male, what it meant and what it felt like to be with a female, what it meant to be with a woman. So if I'm not aware of that, if I'm, if I don't know how to process that or how to deal with that, then moving through life. And this is something that I had to deal with. Women are now inanimate objects. Women are now this relationship, this physical act is not something that is associated with emotion for me. This physical act is not something that is intimate. It's just something that physically I am doing. There's no emotion. There's no connection. There's no I, shit. You could really look at it, you know, with her pretending like she was asleep. There's damn near necrophilia. And so growing up and moving through my adolescence and my teenage years, relationships that I had with the opposite sex that distance was always there. Girls, females, women never got the opportunity to know me. They never got the opportunity to be close. And when I was engaging in physical acts with the opposite sex, it was never, there was never any kissing. There were never the sorts of things that you would associate as a part of a healthy relationship. And so these are the sorts of things that now I'm married, I have two children, I have to be aware of because it's very easy for me to go into the habit 
of distance and disassociating and being cold and being those sorts of things in what is supposed to be an intimate relationship. That's how something that happened when I was seven years old can show up when I'm 50 years old. If I have not dealt with it and even having done the work that I've done on myself, I still have to manage that because it is something that's so ingrained in me. Mm -hmm. How does Inside Circle teach the tools? Well, it's not necessary. I would say it's not teaching the tools so much as it is supporting an individual to look at the things that I just described. It's now been termed a healing model. The circle process is a group of individuals sitting in a circle and supporting one another at looking at why do I think the way that I think? What is it that motivates me to show up in the world in the way that I show up in the world? Where do these things come from? Because everything comes from somewhere. I wasn't born as somebody who was emotionally distant. I wasn't born as someone who was afraid of intimacy. I wasn't born that way. That was a learned behavior. That was something that came from an experience that I had. And until I have the space to go back and discover that within myself, it's still in there festering. So what Inside Circle does is provide a safe space, a, a space that feels safe for me to open up and be asked by facilitators, you know, uh, prompting questions that can help me go into that space to start to look at why do I not want to get close to people? Why do I not want people to get close to me? How does that serve me? How does that play out in my life? And the more that I go into it, the more I take in stock of myself, the deeper I get until ultimately I get to a place like, oh, damn, this is where this comes from. And now I have the option and the support to perhaps begin to reformat that experience and look at that experience that seven-year-old Eldra is having with the help of 30 or 40-something-year-old Eldra there to support seven-year-old Eldra and create an environment that's a little bit safer and a little bit more healthy. And is this within the prison system only or in and out? This work that Inside Circle does began inside. It began in Folsom in 1997-98, following a, a massive racial riot in 1996. And it continues in prison. And it's now outside where there are a lot of us that are outside now. So we do community events. It's not just for males. We do events with humans. We do events with men, women, non-binary, non-conform, human beings. We do a lot of work with at-risk youth. We do a lot of work with school-aged children. Anybody on the face of this planet who feels like there's something in their life that they want to look at, there may be something in their life that they would like to have some healing around, or there may be something inside that they have some questions around, we sit with them. We work with corporations. We're taking this work into uh, corporate America. You know, this is human work. It isn't prison work. It isn't men's work. This is something that any human, in my humble opinion, can benefit from. Mm, okay. So people reach out to the organization mm -hmm. and it happens more so on a one-on-one -on -one basis? Oh, no. It's a group process. It can happen on a one-on-one -on -one basis. There is room for that. But generally, it's in a group. The thing about doing, you know, work like this in a group dynamic is the support that comes from the group and the strength that comes from the group and an individual feeling like they're being seen by other human beings 
and being supported by other human beings and whatever it is that they're speaking to, they can see that they're not the only one. They're not alone. Because oftentimes things that may have been traumatic episodes or events or situations, I can convince myself that nobody understands me. I can tell myself, I can have self-talk going on in my head that I'm the only one who's going through this and it makes no sense to be open and vulnerable and talk about this with anybody else because they won't understand. But then when I get in a circle and willing to uh, open up and share my experiences, having that reflected back to me by others who can identify with the exact same thing that I'm talking about can be cathartic in and of itself. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's no greater healing than being seen and or heard. Mm -hmm. For sure. Beep, beep. Hi, friends. We are brought to you by Earth Tonic Skincare, an all-organic facial product line, handmade in Ojai, California. Our beloved Higher States community will get $15 off any purchase over 75. In addition, 50 trees will be planted along with your purchase via treesforthefuture.org a nonprofit dedicated to planting trees and growing food forests to empower communities damaged by monocrop farming. They use regenerative farming practices to bring nutrients back to the soil, restoring the earth and providing a diverse food source and livelihood to farmers around the world. My personal favorites from Earth Tonics are the Botanical Toning Mist and the Immortel Mushroom Milk Serum. If you're into scents and essential oils, these products are so pure and luxurious, it will leave your skin feeling hydrated, dewy, buoyant, and delicious. All products are made with love and intention for you to be more gentle and kind to yourself while you're looking in the mirror putting these products on your skin. Enter Higher States, all one word in capital letters, at checkout to receive your discount, www.earthtonicskincare.com. That's www earth tonics with an s skincare.com have you heard of brave brave is a fast privacy preserving browser that feels like google chrome but without the ads and the various kinds of tracking that ads come with i was using chrome before for its minimal and uncluttered interface but brave has made it so easy to import bookmarks and extensions over that with its extra privacy feature i'm a newfound fan the Brave browser is free and available on all platforms and is actively used by more than 20 million people around the world. Speedwise, it feels more responsive and also feels private and secure. Try it out at brave.com. If you enjoy these episodes and you find that it adds value to your life, please consider supporting the podcast through Patreon, www.patreon.com slash higher states. Connect with me on Instagram at higher states with two S's at the end. Why two S's at the end, you ask? Well, someone out there is keeping the one with one S hostage and has not responded to my DMs. So if you're out there, please let me have it. Last time I checked, it didn't even seem like you use it. Okay, okay, I digress. Now, back to our show. I was looking at your website and it was saying that the CDC, the ACE, and Kaiser under research, they are all very well aware that issues in incarceration and without comes from childhood, but only less than 1% of the actual budget is going towards that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where is the rest of the budget going? <laughs> <laughs> if they are well, aware. <laughs> the people want to know, that's the $64,000 question. 
Well, there was a huge shift in the early 80s, mid 80s from rehabilitation to simple incarceration slash punishment. When you had the war on drugs, you had the wars on crime and gangs and things like that. And it became about warehousing and the prison industrial complex became a booming multi-billion dollar industry. And then you got these unions involved and prison, you know, feeds a lot of families. There are a lot of people that make a lot of money off of prisons. And if you're familiar with the 13th Amendment of our, the constitution of this great country, slavery was abolished in this country in all areas except for imprisonment. And so there are a lot of publicly traded companies that benefit from slave wages, slave labor that occurs inside of prison. What we're talking about now is potentially turning around a great big battleship and having it do a U-turn in the ocean. That's not something that just happens like whipping a little Toyota Corolla at the light. That's something that takes many, many, many nautical miles, a maneuver that takes a long time to complete. And I think we're moving more in the direction of our system and the people recognizing that something has to shift, something has to change, and it feels like we're in the midst of that now. But a majority of the money goes towards security, safety and security. So staffing prisons and making certain that they're able to be up and running 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, where the hell else it goes is beyond me. <laughs> Salaries mm. and, and union coffers. Mm. When he who shall not be named was president, I was reading an article where he hired one of his friends that were also in charge of making the beds in prisons to mm -hmm. make the beds for his encampments that he was building out for immigrants. Like I say, prison is big business and what goes on, the labor that goes on in there is big business. And I'll speak to California, they have what's called PIA, the Prison Industrial Authority. California PIA, and they have factories in practically every prison in the state of California. There are 33 prisons in California, and then there are, you know, however many other camps and ranches, but there are 33 secure facilities, and most of those facilities have a PIA, and what those are, factories, license plates, the handicap placards, those are made in prison. And no one in one of those factories, the lead man, so the person who might be running a particular crew, the top pay number is 95 cents an hour. I worked in a factory in Tehachapi. I was locked up in Tehachapi and I worked in a furniture factory and we made high back and low back chairs. Those are those office chairs that you sit in and they have the little levers where you can go up and you can go down and you can lean back. And one quarter, they had a meeting, You know, they had a little party just in the little corner of that shop where the crew I was, the four-man crew that I was on making these high-back chairs, one quarter, one three-month period, we pulled in or put out $3.5 million worth of product. I was getting paid 45 cents an hour. Oh my God. These are the sorts of things that go on. And, and I'm just talking about two. So I'm talking about license plates and I'm talking about chairs. And then when you think about, okay, Cal PIA, California Prison Industrial Authority, now you bring in the state aspect of it. And a lot of these contracts, PIA gets 
first refusal on contracts to furnish government buildings, state buildings, your DMB offices, your EDD offices and things like that. So the chairs that I was making in that little corner of the factory, they had high backs and low backs. The low back chairs were $350 a piece. The high back chairs were $500 a piece. So if you open up a new DMV office or DMV office moves and they're ordering furniture, they have to go through PIA first before they can outsource to another entity to get this furniture. I don't know how many buildings, how many offices, how many chairs you need in a DMV office, but at $350 a pop, $500 a pop, that's quite a pretty penny. And you're paying people anywhere from $0.30 cent to $0.95 cents an hour to churn that product out. Damn. What else? Are you allowed to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, uh, tables, you know, again, that furniture factory made everything from chairs to tables. You got the license plate factory in Folsom. You have clothes. They make clothes. They got what they call, uh, what is it called? Silk screens. They make the signs like you see on the side of the road, road work ahead and be prepared, all of that. So they got factories where they make all sorts of things like that. And again, I don't know how much everything sells for out here, but again, the, the pay number and a pay number is what you get paid, starts at 30 cents in prison industry authority and it tops out at 95 cents. Whoa. And then they have what's called uh, the day laborers joint venture. They have a joint venture program and now they get paid. I think their starting was like $1.25. I don't know what they max out with, but those are less secure facilities and they make big stuff like the big concrete preform walls that go into places like you know when you're building these stadiums and all of this sort of so you you, you have some inmate labor that goes towards things like that and you, you know they're getting a couple dollars an hour we know how much something like staple centers cost to be built they make those concrete picnic tables you see scattered all around the place i was at solano and their prefab place made you know they poured concrete they made a lot of stuff like that so, you know, those are just some small shoes. They have shoe factories. They got factories where they make clothing, all sorts of stuff. Wow. So they don't want people to heal. Because if they it's heal, they're not in, in prison. The, in, it's not in the interest of some big businesses for people to heal. No, ma'am. Dang. When I was in the youth authority, before I went to prison, the first institution they sent me to was Ventura. That was a co-ed little, you know, uh, children's prison. They had males and females there. And they had an airline back in the day called TWA, Trans World Airline. The call center was right there in Ventura. And so you had prisoners, inmates, young kids who worked in TWA's call center that were taking reservations and booking flights. They were the third party person that TWA was using for their call center. And they wound up having to stop that. Something happened with some credit card information or something like that. But that's the sort of thing that happens. That's the sort of thing how business can profit off of prison being such a big business. It is what it is. Wow. From your experience, how just looking around in the prison system when you were there, mm -hmm. what percentage of people do you think could have rebuilt their lives if they were just given the tools? More than half? 
Uh, I'm going to say just looking around in my non-professional opinion, because I don't have any degrees in anything like this, I would say over 90%. Really? Yes. Wow. Over 90%. There are very few people in, in the population on the face of the planet that are just, you know, I guess the terminology would be a sociopath or something like that. Most people have redeemable qualities that given the opportunity and given the space to recognize the light and spark within themselves and participate in what Dr. James McCleary has termed to be the good enough environment and experience that can put their lives back together. Do you feel like there's an age group that's targeted? That's targeted for? For prison. I don't know if there's an age group that's necessarily targeted, but you can definitely look at statistics and see that the people who are entering prison tend to be on the younger side. And then the higher population, as you look at the art, they're older because they're going in now and staying for longer periods of time. But it's definitely your younger folks who are engaged more so in the sorts of activities that are going to get them into situations of incarceration. They're the ones who are going to be making the more reckless and dangerous decisions around their lives. So I don't know that they're necessarily targeted. I think if we're talking about people being targeted for prison, now we're talking about demographics. We're talking about where people live and how those areas are policed as opposed to where other areas are policed. Now we're getting into things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How laws are created and, and what those laws tend to favor. You go back to your crack versus cocaine laws, you know, and a handful of crack will get you 10 times as much time in a federal prison as a kilogram of powder cocaine. Who's more likely to have a kilogram of powder cocaine as opposed to a handful of crack? Mm-hmm. Have you seen The Watchmen with Regina King? Yes. I loved it. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. I'll say this, you know, uh, I don't make the news, ma'am. I just report it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but these stories aren't told. No, no. That's really why I wanted you to share your story mm -hmm. to get mm -hmm. this information out there. There's a lot of things that I think that if, you know, more of, society was educated around some of these things and had more access to information, they would have more questions around where their money was being spent. They would have more questions around what our elected officials are doing and, and what the systems we have in place, how they're serving them. Because the truth of the matter is, is that over 85% of every individual who gets arrested, either goes to trial or takes a plea bargain and winds up doing some form of incarceration, will be returning to the community. Everybody doesn't go away for life without the possibility of parole. Everybody doesn't go away with life. Everybody doesn't go to the death chamber. Most people are returning to our communities. So my question would be, how do we want these people returning to the communities? Do we want them returning as individuals who have had the opportunity to get some exposure to healing the things that were inside of them that enabled them to rationalize committing acts against their neighbors, committing acts against society? Or do we want them going in and for lack of better phraseology, 
coming back out as wild, crazed animals who've been poked and prodded and tortured and then turned loose to run amok in our communities because we have a say-so in what we want and how we want our systems to serve us. So I think the more information that we're able to get out there to the people that can help spur a long change and some reforms within the system. People are not going to move to change something that they don't know, you know, necessarily needs to be fixed or amended or reformed. Was that the intention behind the film? Hmm. No, that wasn't the intention behind the film. The actual intention, I remember a, a group of us sitting around and thinking about, even before the film was made, was, uh, wouldn't it be something if people out in the world could see what we're doing in here and see that we have some value and see that we're really trying to do something. We're really trying to be humans and find a way to get back into the human race and maybe effectuate some sort of inspiration in the lives of young people so that they could look at us as examples of what not to be in order to get there, but maybe to be what we are now on the other side while they still have their whole life ahead of them and make it to the moon. The world's their oyster. You know, our lives are over, but their lives are just beginning. That was, you know, some of the conversation. And then when the crew came in and actually did the filming, it was like, okay, yeah, this is, you know, this will probably never see the light of day because people come in and film stuff often and you never see anything or hear anything about it or, or anything like that. And, and, and then it, you know, did wind up seeing the light of day and the feedback at least that I have received up to this point is that it's been something transformational for people when they're able to watch it and most people are able to either see something in there that rings true and resonates for them or for somebody that they know. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Time by Garrett Bradley? No, I have not. Oh, check it out. I'm going to write that down now. Time by Garrett Bradley. Yeah, it's a story of this man and his wife. Uh, He got sent to prison for 20 years for robbing a bank. Mm -hmm. And it's about his story of being released and uh, a love story, really, between him and his wife. It's really beautiful. Look that up. I'm going to look that up. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Obama listed it as one of his favorite movies of last year. Okay. Yeah, you know, I trust Obama's word. (laughs) (laughs) You know, every year he brings out a list of all his favorites. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna look this up. Time by Garrett Bradley. Got it. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Break down toxic masculinity for us, an echo of what you were talking about in your TED talk. Okay, well, for me, what toxic masculinity is, is, and, and I'll start with a disclaimer, when I speak about that, you know, that's a term that's become popular lately, and it's something that people hear and will immediately shut down and leave the room and want no part of the conversation and take it that it's an attack on men, it's an attack on maleness, it's an attack on anything having to do with testosterone. And for me, that's not the case. We could talk about, we could call, you know, this pink bunny rabbits versus toxic masculinity. When I'm speaking about pink bunny rabbits, what I'm talking about are the parts of myself and the attitudes of myself that I 
Elder Jackson III associated with being a man and being a male and what it meant to be masculine and how those aspects can get distorted and have gotten distorted and then show up in a destructive way in my life and in a way that does not serve me in a positive manner and brings harm to others in my sphere. For me, that is what toxic masculinity is. And an example of that would be big boys don't cry. To be a man means to be strong and to show no emotion and to suck it up, feel no pain, keep it trooping, keep moving, soldier on. For me, that can be, it can distort and show up in a toxic way within myself if I, with that attitude, fail to engage in self-care and I fail to engage in taking care of myself and noticing the places where I'm hurt, noticing the places where I need healing, noticing the places where physically my body is telling me that I need to go see the doctor about something because something's happening and, I, and, and I'm not able to understand that. And perhaps that leads to, you know, shaving some years off my life. That's toxic. And that for me can be around masculinity and my ideation of what masculinity means, always showing strength, always being strong, never being viewed as weak. That's how it can show up and be negative for me. On the flip side of that, show up to be negative, you know, uh, in my dealings with, with other people is me expecting that out of others. And when others don't show up in that same mentality, looking down on them and judging them as less than. Now that is going to inform how I deal with them. Or it can show up in my lack of emotional awareness. So if I'm engaged in a relationship, an intimate relationship with somebody, and I'm not emotionally aware, how present can I be with my partner? That can be harmful to myself and to the partner and the relationship. So those are things that can be very subtle. And for me, I would put underneath the umbrella of toxic masculinity and anything can be toxic. Hell, water can be toxic. You can drink too much water and it can kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a hot word right now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, your disclaimer was important to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, some people hear that and they say, boop, turn it off. Yeah. And, and I want to, you know, be very mindful of that and make certain that I'm always aware of how, how powerful language is, how powerful words are, and how it can trigger and bring things up for people and provide a space for people to, you know, recognize that anybody's welcome. And my intention is never to alienate anybody or cause harm to anybody or castigate anybody or make anybody feel like what I'm trying to do is make them feel less than or unworthy or attack them. That's really not the case. That's not where I'm coming from. That's why I always try and make certain that I speak from the I perspective and talk about my personal experience because that might not be true for somebody else. That might work in someone else's life. I've just gotten to a point where I recognize it doesn't work in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another word like that is God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
there are a lot of words that can trigger people and the power of words, you know, like I say, I want to always try to be mindful of that to keep as many people in the room and engaged in conversation as possible, because only through having these sorts of conversations and bringing these things to the light that might be triggers that might touch something on me or another individual, you know, internally, can we start to look at those things and start to have discussions that contribute to healing? You know, another big piece is race. You start to use race and prejudice and racism and things like that. You clear the room. Or if people stay in the room, everybody's mums the word. Nobody has an opinion. Nobody wants to say anything because nobody wants to get excommunicated from the human race. And until we start having these conversations in a safe space and in a healthy way to understand other people and understand other people's viewpoints and what does and does not work for them, we're going to continue to have what we are dealing with today. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on race? Hmm. Well, it depends on who you're asking. It depends on if you're asking Eldred Jackson or if you're asking Eldred Jackson, co-executive director of Inside Circle, because they're two very different answers. <laughs> oh, both? Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give the professional answer, the Eldred Jackson, co-executive director of Inside Circle. Race is something that is born of fear. Racism is something that's born of fear. I truly feel and believe that everybody at their core really just wants to be understood and wants to be safe. And we don't all know how to get that. We don't all know how to get to that place and communicate that to other people. And so we allow, collectively, we allow fear to run the show for us. And it shows up in ways that are harmful to self and to other. And, you know, I could say a whole bunch of other kumbaya type stuff around that and it's all going to be around healing it's all going to be around supporting one another and i truly do feel that and believe that and my mission is to create spaces like that and engage in that to contribute to a better world for my sons and for their sons and daughters and now elder jackson the individual my feelings about race is that we all need to all do our own motherfucking work we all need to look at the places where we're blind. I need to look at the places where I'm blind. I need to be able to have a conversation with you, Chloe, and speak about how I show up in the world. And how I show up in the world is if I'm driving down the road and I have some sort of incident that's traffic related and I can't see who the driver is, my mind automatically goes to a particular place. And that place that my mind goes to is, I bet it's an Asian driver. <laughs> and that is the truth of where my mind goes to. That's what I think. And then if I pull up next to the driver and I look over and see, and that's confirmed, I say, boom, see, there it goes. That has absolutely nothing to do with race. What that has to do with is, my judgment about how somebody can or cannot drive in relation to how I view my driving prowess, and maybe they did make a dangerous maneuver or do some dunderhead thing, but it has nothing to do with race. That's my bullshit. 
And until I can have that conversation with you and own that and start to look at where that comes from and recognize that that's a part of me and apologize to you about that part of me and be willing to look at that part of me and where that comes from and how that shows up and how I project that and how I show up in the world, well, that shit is just going to continue. And when I hear other people say things like that and I don't say anything against it, and I don't call it out, then I'm contributing to it. That's what I think about race. What I think about race is that as a people, humans were a bunch of fucking cowards who were scared to speak about the truth and to speak about what's really going on and culturally what we believe, be it real or be it mythology, about people who don't look like us. And until we start to have those sorts of conversations and start to learn about one another and start to learn about one another's culture and start to have empathy and understanding for one another, we're going to continue to be in a place and a space where it's easy for me to view you who does not look like me as other, as opposed to simply Chloe without all of the tags, uh, woman, a, whatever my mind tells me, all of that other bull jive that means absolutely nothing because at the heart, who you are is Chloe, a human and an individual who just like anybody else wants to be heard, desires to be respected as a human wants to be loved and on and on and on. That's what I think about race. I agree with you. That is very true, but just on the lighter note of that. <laughs> There is some truth to it. <laughs> Stereotypes don't come out of nowhere. <laughs> and for me, when someone's driving crazy, I'm like, oh, I bet it's just some dumb white girl looking at her phone. So I have those stereotypes in my head too. We all have them. We all have them. And we keep them to ourselves or we keep them within the confines of our groups of the people who we're comfortable talking about with, you know, at our own, you know, collective cookouts or barbecue or whatever it is we're doing, you know, with our groups, cliques and clans, we, we you know, we gotta be willing, I gotta be willing to go outside of my comfort zone in order to learn because the world is bigger than what I know. The world is bigger than my experience. And those experiences that are out there in the world are valuable as well. They're a part of what makes this big blue marble possible and able to continue to make its rotations. Yeah, that's what higher states really became birthed out of. It was the month of the George Floyd protests when the entire <laughs> country and the entire world went up in uproar. And for me, it's been a process of healing, of understanding, because in the beginning, I was really angry, not just because of completely senseless acts to humans, but for the performative aspect of someone who's never cared in their life, but all of a sudden now they care because everyone else cares and they want to seem like the good guy who cares. So I was very upset and very judgmental of all the performance activism, mm -hmm. but I realized that is part of change. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, that's how it goes. And then it becomes more embodied. And then people mm -hmm. do actually care. And at the end of the day, it's better that people are showing up and in my eyes, pretending or just making a show, but at least they're saying something now. At least it's activating voices 
Yes. So it's really important too, on the flip side, to not be judgmental on my end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I totally agree. I went through that myself. Yeah. And only in retrospect did I see it of, oh, mm -hmm. okay, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the first time. I'm sure it echoes the civil rights movement. Most definitely. It's, you know, people were asking me all last year what I felt, what I thought, and what my opinions were. And similar to yourself, I saw a lot of things as performance. That was my judgment. And I judged a lot of the reaction to be because we were on coronavirus lockdown and people were not able to engage in the things that they would normally be engaged in that would have their lives occupied, that would have their attention occupied. So they were forced to sit and look at it over and over and over again because everybody's in front of screens now. I had to do some work within myself around that. And one of the big judgments for myself was people are acting like this is the first time anything like this has been on camera, like this is the first time anything like this has been photographed. You know, where were you two, a year before this happened or two weeks before this happened? All of the things that we have on tape and that are chronicled, where were you and where was this outrage when we watched Rodney King get beat half to death with baseball bats? You know, where were you when Emmett Till's mom made certain that her son had an open casket so that we would never forget what these sorts of attitudes could bear out? For me, a lot of judgment as a black man in this country who lives daily with uh, fear around racism and fear around what a traffic stop could look like and how that could be a life altering interaction. And now all of a sudden everybody gives a damn because they can't go skiing or because they can't jump on a private jet or, or whatever it, you know, it is. The truth of the matter is a lot like what you said, the important piece is that people are having the conversation. People are talking about it. It's top of mind for folks. And we have another generation that is looking at it and they're not going for it. They are not happy at all. And for me, that's who's going to move the needle. It's not going to be the old guard. It's not going to be, you know, those people or those of us who have been hanging around and doing the same thing for however many centuries, it's gonna be these young folks who are looking at this and have no understanding around why somebody's being treated like this. They don't understand it. They don't believe in it. They're not going for it. And gonna be Shaka with the dreads who feels that way. And it's gonna be Susie from Marina Del Mar who feels that way. And she's gonna be right there next to Shaka. It's gonna, whoever, these young folks are not going for this. That's what I see and inspires me and brings joy and hope to my heart that young people are getting educated and they're talking and they're collectively coming to the conclusion that they are not happy with the status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't care. They don't care what you look like, who you have sex with, what you want to eat. Yeah, yeah, I love that about the youth too. Yeah. I feel very ignited anytime mm -hmm. I can prick their minds a bit, mm -hmm. find out what they're thinking, how they see the world. Yeah. Young people are our future. That's who's going to make a difference. And that's who I think that they're looking at the state of the world and what we collectively are leaving them and where we've driven this world and steered it to. And they're not happy as well. They shouldn't be. <laughs> they're not happy. 
that's where change is going to come from. That's where new attitudes and new connections and new relationships are going to be born. You know, I think it's inevitable. It has to die out. It's very similar to the queen of England right now and the new generation of her grandson and his wife. That is the generation of today. There is no reason for a monarchy. It doesn't fit. It never ceases to amaze me how this country, the United States was, you know, you had people that were coming over here for various reasons and landed here and they talk about freedom and they fought several wars. They fought a, a revolutionary war to break away from monarchies of England, of Spain, of France, to get away from all of those centuries, millennia old ways of being in constructs and cannot get enough of reading about the queen and reading about the prince and what are they doing and how are they living and uh, it, it always amazes me that people who historically we wanted no parts of that and wanted to be from underneath that but can't get enough of what the hell they have going on mm -hmm. it's like they forgot have you seen andre day's performance in billy holiday versus the u.s government i have not okay Ooh, you gotta watch it. I cried. It's so good. It's her first performance and she won, I believe either an Academy Award or an Oscar for it. And it's a biopic of Billie Holiday's life, mainly around her song, Strange Fruit, basically how the government tortured her into trying to stop her to sing that song and her courageousness and her bravery for continuing to sing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and correct, you know, courage and, and bravery is something that is we, every human being, I believe, has inside of them. And at different points in our lives, we are incited or inspired to display more of it in the situation and in the moment. And going back, you know, to some of these young people and a lot of these young people and, and some of the movements that we see coming out now, it's heroic to see them, you know, step up and begin to buck trends and buck what their parents or their grandparents, their forefathers, how they were taught, how they were trained, the messages that were passed down to them, you know, blindly off in cases, you know, it's just a cultural thing where certain ideologies and beliefs are, are passed down and it takes courage to break away from that. And to look at the potential of being branded as a, a bad seed or whatever by your heritage, your lineage, your people, your family, your bloodlines, to strike out against that and go towards something that feels right, that feels right in your soul. That is, that's hero stuff. That's courage. Definitely. If, if you go to bed with something and you wake up with that too, you got to go for it. Mm-hmm. Because not everyone has that call. Not everyone. I don't know that everyone doesn't have it. I, don't, I think that we don't all answer it. Mm. And we're not all in tune to hear when the call is put out. If I'm not in tune to hear when the call was put out, then I'm not going to hear it. And I might leave the face of this earth believing that I'm not one of those people who was called. For me, it's about being in tune and being open to receiving the call and then being willing to answer the call. And I think every call looks different. You know, hell, having a baby, 
is a call. A woman giving birth, that's a call. I ain't doing it. I'm not answering that call. If it was left up to me, and I've talked to plenty of men, if it was left up to us, the population would have died out long ago. That's some heroic stuff. That is, a, so every call looks different. Everything is not to be the first this or the greatest that or the most influential this. It could just be something that my ego tells me is something that is day to day, like looking after my sons or imparting whatever life lessons or teachings that I have for my son. That's a call. And I think we all have a call that are several calls that are put out to us. It's about being open to answering that call. Mm, yeah, that's a better way to put it. I like that. That requires a choice then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always about choice. You know, for me, it's always about personal choice. I always have a choice. Nothing is ever set in stone and this is what it is. This is how I have to be or how I have to act. It's always about choice. I went into prison. You know, we started this interview talking about prison and what it was like going into prison for me. Well, going in, there are a set of rules. There are a set of constructs and constitutions about this is what it means to be a prisoner. And these are the attitudes that you have towards other types of prisoners. And these are the attitudes and ways that you act towards guards. And it, I mean, an encyclopedia full of rules and regulations and guidelines that are built on this is just how it is and there is no choice in that and i've seen hundreds if not thousands of lives ruined because of the limiting belief around personal choice and personal agency but i always have a choice you always have a choice we all always have a choice to go not just maybe one way or the other, but if I'm open to it, there are several different ways that I can go. There are several different choices and options available to me if I take off the blinders and I'm willing to believe that I have that power. Mm. What do you think gets in the way of that? Self, ego, training, culture, surroundings, self-talk. Uh, everything <laughs> self-esteem messages received from others those all of those sorts of things can come in and that's what helps to inform what i believe about myself mm. and then those beliefs that i have about myself again that that informs how i'm going to move through the world and how i'm going to be with other people for someone listening eldra interested in this work wants to know more, how do they contact you? Where should they go? How do they find out more information? InsideCircle.org. They can learn more about the organization. They can find us on Facebook at Inside Circle, Instagram. I'm going to throw it out. I, I, I don't, I think it's inside underscore circle underscore some, somebody else handles that stuff, but we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. They can check out the documentary, The Work. It's titled The Work. It's available on Amazon. We have a podcast, the Inside Circle podcast, hosted by myself, Elder Jackson III. Yeah, that's where they can find us and learn more. Thank you so much for your time, Eldra. I really enjoyed you're it. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for doing what you're doing, creating a platform 
to get more voices out there and share more thoughts and ideas with people. And I hope that the folks that are listening to you continue to do so and are sparked to go and find uh, their call and answer their call. Yes. Hallelujah.